We'll be in Second Chronicles 17 to begin. I was just going to do Second Chronicles 17 and 18, and then I saw there were only 11 verses in 19, so I figured let's just cover all three. <laughs> no, it's a it's a story that kind of comes to a to a head, has a sum total in these three chapters. They're not long chapters, but they're incredibly valuable. Okay, every verse of every chapter of every book in the Bible is incredibly valuable. But tonight there's something very special I believe we'll see and be reminded of and, and something that I, I hope that you'll leave here tonight praying about and praying for. We're skipping chapter 16. You may have noticed that if you've been tracking along. We're going to save that for Sunday because that deals with King Asah and the last part of his life. And so we're going to come back to Asah. We talked about on Sunday the great revival that came under this king who walked in the ways of David, one of the good kings of Judah. And chapter 16 continues to the end of his life. And then we pick up in chapter 17, and that's where we're going to be tonight. But I would ask you one more time to bow with me, and, and let's ask the Lord's blessing specifically on the teaching of the Word tonight. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Lord of all, our great Father, we pray to you, and we thank You for seeing through Your plan and your, your promises. We thank You, Lord, that You are a God of covenant. And that once You set something in motion, once You speak a word, it is not an idle word for us. And tonight, every word that we read, and as we study through, I pray, would not be idle, would not fall on our hearts. The word is not idle, but sometimes our hearts are in gearing up to, to receive. And I ask, Lord, that You would allow us the grace by Your Spirit to have wide open hearts to receive Your Word tonight. To really enter into Your presence. Father, I pray this all the time. I just hope that this is not a Bible study in the traditional sense that we don't just sit and learn things by rote. But Father, we enter into Your presence. We dialogue with You in heart and spirit and mind even as we read. We ask the tough questions. We think through these things. And Father, You... We pray, guide us into a deeper revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ and of Your nature, Father, and of Your passion for Your people. I thank You for Your Word and I thank You for this opportunity again we have to gather in this barn and read and study, meditate, and be grown closer to You. So we pray this with expectation in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've said, the key word to Second Chronicles is revival. But in our study, something's become very clear to me about this concept of revival. This is the wonderful thing, again, about going through the Word of God as you come across concepts and ideas and you are taught in ways that you might not have been if you just went on a word search yourself. And I've come to see something and understand something about revival I didn't understand or get before, and that is this. There is nothing arbitrary about revival. Our Father doesn't use a hit-and-miss strategy. In other words, He doesn't sit up in the heavens and fire off rockets of revival, hoping at some point they're going to nab somebody, hit some unsuspecting passers-by. I have to tell you this story. I really struggle with this because it is not something that you want to emulate in your pastor. It's not something you ever want to do, but it is something I did, and it to this day is one of the funniest things I've ever seen, but it wasn't very nice. So I'm just giving you that precursor 
I did something that was not nice. I will share with you, and then I'll explain why I'm sharing with you, but we were in Southern California in Anaheim. Cheryl and I were married, and, and uh, her parents had gotten a hotel room in the Disneyland Hotel about eight, eight or nine stories up. Okay? And they got the room. We were spending a couple different days in, at Disneyland in the park, and so the room was there just to go and take naps, and, and they were staying there overnight. So we're up in the room, and it's, it's dark, it's, it's late in the evening, probably, I don't know, 10 o'clock, and um, I was bored. Now these were in my pre-ministry days, so you've got to cut me a little slack. But I'm looking out the window, and, I, and I'm noticing that the window is like directly above the door that people had to take to get into the hotel. So people are constantly walking right under our window. But this idea popped into my mind, and I went and I got a glass of water, and went over to the window... I, I know I wouldn't do it today. So as these poor people, now it was, a, it was a hot day in Southern California, so actually I'm doing them a favor. But do you know what water does when you pour it out of a cup eight stories up? It spreads out. It spreads out like an umbrella, like a sheet of water. It's not just a, a straight on thing. It spreads out and goes and floats down. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Because these people were just walking along and all of a sudden you would just see them kind of cringe and the ground around them immediately was wet. You know, so like this and they'd look up and we'd ah, and we'd laugh. And, and, and I tell you this for a reason. Well, first of all, don't ever do that because it was immature. Funny though it was. But think about that picture. God doesn't do revival that way. He doesn't sit up in the clouds and tip buckets of living water out of drenching, unsuspecting people with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is not how it works. There is preparation that takes place before revival. We talked about this on Sunday. The Lord first prepares the soil. And then He plants the seed. The soil is the heart. And faith. Rich, healthy soil is a heart full of faith. And then he plants the seed of the Word and it grows and it germinates and it begins to sprout. And then he cultivates in us, by us and even through us, using our hands, he will cultivate revival and it will culminate in great peace and rejoicing. We went through all that on Sunday. And this is, this is huge to me. Maybe not so much. Maybe you're, you're way out ahead of me on this, but I just think, Wow. The Lord is not haphazard in the pouring out of His Holy Spirit. He is purposeful and, and, and moves with, with great precision. And He depends on you and on me making a decision to receive Him first. A decision of faith. And then He begins to pour out. But none of us should be surprised then when revival comes, as if we were hit by something that God poured from the 8th floor of the Disneyland Hotel. We shouldn't be surprised. We should be expecting and ready to receive what God has for us because He's already begun this process in our lives. It is a people's or a person's heart toward the Lord that determines the outpouring of His Spirit unto a revival. If the people aren't ready, God is certainly not going to pour out His Spirit on them unless they are truly ready to move forward. And we see this principle in every generation of Israel and Judah. It was the covenant responsibility of the people to respond and to return to their God. Remember 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent and turn to me and pray, well then I will respond. I'll hear from heaven. I'll come and I'll, I'll heal their land. And that's exactly what happens in Israel and well in Judah. Israel doesn't do so well once the kingdom divides. But in Judah, 
as the people respond and return to the Lord, then He brings revival. Then He pours out. As we open up chapter 17, we find the next king, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is riding on the winds of the revival under his father's generation. He's a second generation revivalist now. And these winds of Asa's generation fuel the generation under Jehoshaphat. So they're still rolling along strong. They are still in that place that is healthy and good with the Lord. Jehoshaphat is one of the good kings. I I like this guy. In fact, I can relate to him in many ways, as we'll see when we get further in. But you can make a a good case that Jehoshaphat not only follows in the steps of his father, but even surpasses his father's faithfulness to the Lord. even goes a step further in the way he lives his life before the Lord. Now, Jehoshaphat, as we will see, is still a flawed man. So is Asa. We're going to talk about that on Sunday. But Jehoshaphat goes through some things. He has some lessons to learn. Specifically, Jehoshaphat needs to learn what many of us especially today need to learn, and that is how to discern. To learn to discern. Jehoshaphat is a great godly man, loves the Lord, was raised up under his father, or in his father's faith, Asah. But he still needs to learn discernment, and we'll see that tonight. Chapter 17 and verse 1. Jehoshaphat, his son, Asah's son, that is, then became king in his place and made his position over Israel firm. Now wait a minute. Got to be careful how you read this verse or you can get something lost in translation. It says he made his position over Israel firm. Jehoshaphat is not king of Israel. He's king of Judah. So what is this saying? Well, the word over there in the Hebrew also is translated against. Read it that way. And this is how the King James translates. Jehoshaphat, his son, then became king in his place and made his position against Israel firm. What this is saying in verse 1 is Jehoshaphat strengthened his fortified cities. In fact, verse 2 tells us, placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah, set garrisons in the land of Judah, and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa his father had captured. So that's to the north of Judah. He made his positions against Israel firm. In other words, he shored up his defense against the northern kingdom of Israel. That's how this chapter is starting out. His concern was with his northern brothers, the ten tribes of Israel. Now, I point that out because it becomes pertinent later on in our story as we read on. Verse 3. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's, not Asa's, David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. Notice the Bible says he followed the example of his father David, who was actually his great-great-great-grandfather. But now Jehoshaphat is looking back. David is the gold standard. David is the king among all the kings of Judah, at least until Jesus comes. He is the king to look to and say, if you live like David, God is pleased. Especially, note it says, he followed his father David's earlier days. I don't know if the indication there is pre-Bathsheba or not, but but early faith. Well, Jehoshaphat started out that way in that relational, real, authentic faith in the Lord. Just trusting in God, walking with God. Not as religion, but as relationship, which we talk so much about. So in verse 5, the Lord established His kingdom in His control. And all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. He took great pride in the ways of the Lord, and again remove the high places and the Asherim from Judah, because those high places keep getting built up. 
Every king that tries to remove them, you find with the next king, they're back again. And again and again. And then in the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Benhiel, Obadiah, Zechariah, Netanel, Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them the Levites, Shemaiah, Netaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemiramoth, Yohanathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah, the Levites. And with them Elishama and Jehoram, the priests. They taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, and they went throughout the cities of Judah and taught among the people. What are they doing? They're seeding the soil. Maintaining now the harvest of revival. Taking the word throughout Judah. This is one of the wisest things Jehoshaphat did. Sent teachers throughout the kingdom. They didn't have, they couldn't just go online and, and download a teaching. You know, they couldn't go on the TV or, or, or listen to the radio. So the teachers had to go out in person. I think that's much more effective than, unfortunately, the way that we sometimes have to do it today. But remember that revival depends on this. The planting of the seed of the word. And it's not a one-time deal. It's an ongoing planting. Keep bringing the Word. Keep teaching the Word. It's not by means of strict disciplinary study. It's not as of collegiate determination. But gang, the Word of God, as we get into it, even tonight, it should lift you up. Just the study of the Word. It should be exciting for us. We just sang the song, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at what your Word tells me you did. I'm amazed. And I believe if we're looking at the Word of the Lord through the lens of faith, every time we open the Bible, we are amazed by it. Why did Jehoshaphat send teaching officials, teaching Levites, and teaching priests out among the people? And the word is, the single answer for that is pride. Pride. You read that, that he had great pride. But I like this. It's in the ways of the Lord. This Hebrew word here, pride, is gabah. And gabah literally means lifted up or exalted. It's saying that he was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Caught up in the ways of God. Amazed by the Father such that he he had pride. And that's a good pride. You ever been proud of of a daddy or, or, or proud of a son or proud of a family member? It's that kind of pride. It's not the look at me, look at how great I am. It's I am just so proud of my God. I'm so proud of Jesus. I love to talk about Jesus. Why? Because I'm proud of Him. Look at what He's done. And that's the kind of pride that we're talking about. Actually, there are two kinds of pride that, you'll, that you can note here. One is fruitful pride, which is what we're seeing. Verse 6, He took great pride in the ways of the Lord. Because just thinking about God was exalting, lifted up. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way. It's one of my favorite quotes. The highest science... The loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the works, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind and spirit in contemplation of the divinity. Spurgeon was 20 years old when he said that. Wow. But he was right. He was dead on. To to contemplate God is to lift your spirit. To be raised up to a higher place. And Jehoshaphat got it. He was proud. It was fruitful pride. So proud of his father, he wanted all Judah to be aware. To be told. He wanted them to know how proud he was of his father. Kind of like my kids are with me. You know, They're always telling people how proud they are. Okay, not so much. But he sends out his teachers... 
And once again, the seed of the word is spread out for revival. Verse 10. Now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Again, the key to revival. When revival is taking place, there is peace. There is rest. There is quiet. That is an offshoot, a culmination of revival. And some of the Philistines, Israel's arch enemy here, check this out. Some of them brought gifts and silver as tribute to Jehoshaphat. They didn't even do that in David's day. But now they are so amazed by the kingdom of Judah, they're bringing tribute. The the Arabians also brought him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. And so Jehoshaphat grew greater and greater, and he built fortresses and store cities in Judah. He had large supplies in the cities of Judah, and warriors, valiant men in Jerusalem. This was their muster, according to their father's households. Of Judah, commanders of thousands. Adna was the commander, and with him, 300,000 valiant warriors. And next to him was Johanan, the commander, and with him 280,000. And next to him, Amasiah, the son of Zechariah, who volunteered for the Lord, and with him 200,000 valiant warriors. And of Benjamin, Eliada, a valiant warrior, and with him 200,000 armed with bow and shield. And next to him, Jehoshaphat, and with him 180,000 equipped for war. These are they who serve the king apart from those whom the king put in the fortified cities through all of Judah. Jehoshaphat's military might, if you count these numbers up, is double that of his father Esau. We read in the previous chapters, Esau had 580,000 valiant warriors. Jehoshaphat had had, had 1,080,000 valiant warriors, not even including the outlying cities and fortified places. This is just the local army. Over a million people ready to fight. Why is that? (laughs) Because revival produces fruit. Literally, revival produces a fruitful pride, a a, a lifting up of the Lord, an exaltation in the Lord that is so exciting and so wonderful that fruit is the result. And not only was their military power great, but the dread of the Lord was on all the lands around. This was a fantastic time in the history of Israel under King Jehoshaphat. Now, Psalm 110 verse 3 tells us your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. It indicates a picture of a time when Jesus comes into his power, in his throne, in his thousand year reign, and no one is going to have any problem volunteering to help out in that time. And we need about 20 people to stack chairs at the end of worship. Boom, they're there. Because it's the day of his power. I think there's also implication that when God's power is being poured out on a people, when revival is taking place, the same thing is true. There, there are volunteers. There's no problem with it. Your people volunteer freely when your power is seen. Why? Because we get exalted in it. We get caught up in it. We get lifted up by it. We want to be where the Lord is, where He's really doing something amazing. The revival under Asa now carries over to the next generation and it obviously is motivating a people, which is why the, the military is doubled, motivating a people to stand up for king and country and God. And this is one of the proofs of true revival. Another, another tidbit on revival here. A true revival bears fruit over time. Now think about this. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 23, the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And you read that and say, well, what does he mean? A hundredfold what? Sixty what? Thirty what? Well, what is he talking about? What is the fruit 
that Jesus is referring to here. Israel didn't get it. In fact, by Jesus' day, they so missed this concept that He spoke these words, Matthew 21.43, I say to you, therefore, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Again, the fruit. The kingdom is going to produce fruit. If you are following the Lord, if you're filled with the Lord, there's going to be fruit there. What is that, that fruit? John 15.8, the Lord says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be My disciples. Okay, here's a hint. How do people know you're His disciples? Galatians 5.22 Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. But how do people know that you are a disciple? What did Jesus say? By your love. They will know you are My disciples by your love. Now, what's the first fruit of the Spirit? It's love. So, Spencer nailed it. By your love. Okay. So, we're going to bear fruit. And that fruit is connected somehow to love. Jesus said, You did not choose Me, but I chose You and appointed You so that You would go and bear fruit and that Your fruit would remain. Okay, so does that mean we just go around just loving people? Are we the, like Jesus' flower children? Is that the idea? Because we could do that right now. We'd go down to SeaTac and pass out flowers and go, Love you, man. Love you, sis. Love you. No, there's more to it than this. What is the fruit that remains? Now, now I have a problem personally, this is just Rick, but with some of today's so-called revivals, they're disappointing to me. And here's why. They don't last. They, they don't last. Uh, you see things emerge and you hear a buzz and something's going on over here in this part of the country or this part of the country. People say, it's revival, it's revival. And, and I'm standing back going, I will believe it's revival in ten years. <coughs> because there's going to be fruit of it. It's got to bear fruit. So many of the days, revivals lack longevity. They may last a week, they may last a month, or even a season, but they're measured by the immediate excitation of what's going on rather than long-term fruition. Now, we're still not quite there. What is this fruit, this long-term fruit that is born out of it over time that you can truly see when revival happens? Well, think about the revival of Jesus. Hold on, because if you answer wrong, you're going to be embarrassed, Vince, and I don't want you to be. <laughs> what is it? Think about it. Okay, Jesus' revival. What's Jesus' revival? When literally, take it literally, when he revived, what was that? What do we call that? The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, what was the fruit that was produced by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? What? We were saved. We were saved. That's right. And you may have been thinking that and saying that. I can't hear real well. But we were saved. Salvation is the fruit of resurrection. Salvation is the fruit of revival. The fruit of revival, gang, and this is connected to our loving, is people. People. Well, there's a great revival happening at the British Christian Fellowship. How do you know? People are showing up. Not saved people. Lost people. They're coming out of the woodwork. They're receiving the gospel. They're falling down before the Lord. They're being filled with the Holy Spirit. People you would not expect are coming to Jesus right and left. Revival's happening. You know it's happening then. Because the fruit is born of it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.20, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ the first fruits. And then those, Paul says later, who are alive at His coming. So look around. You're all a bunch of fruits. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's what we are. We are the fruit of the revival of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the fruit of revival is always going to be people. Jesus said in John 43, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. The fruit is not church membership. The fruit is not who shows up. But the fruit is eternal life. Someone who comes to Jesus is saved by faith in Jesus and now is a fruit right along with the rest of us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5 says, The word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as in you also since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Now that's why I said on Sunday that a revival, if it is not about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not a revival. It may be a great time of worship. It may be an outpouring of the Spirit on believers. But it is not a revival if it doesn't contain at the center the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is the power to salvation for all who believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of that. That's fruitful pride. It is not difficult to take pride in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be proud of it. I'm not talking about foolish pride. That's the second kind of pride we can look at here. I'm talking about fruitful pride, where you are so thrilled with what Jesus has done that it rolls off your lips on a constant basis. Pride in the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's something worth boasting about. But there is another pride. And we begin to see it, I believe, at least hints of it in Jehoshaphat. He's done so well. He's got the teaching guys out there. He is moving the Word. He is flourishing because of it. God is blessing Judah. The dread of the Lord surrounds. The army is strong. Everything's great. They have days of peace. But the second kind of pride is fruitless pride, which is a pride that tears down, or foolish pride. You can go either way. I I couldn't decide, so we'll say them both. Fruitless or foolish pride. Back to our story. Here's Jehoshaphat riding high on all this honor that is coming into Jerusalem, coming into the great king. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. Now if you've studied the word at all, you know that Ahab is the most vile, wicked, pathetic king in the entire history of the nation of Israel. He is by far the worst. In fact, 1 Kings 16.30 says, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Verse 33 of 1 Kings 16, He did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He provoked the Lord. Now that's not a smart place to be. He pushed God's buttons. He got the Lord upset and angry because he was so wicked and so vile. His wife was Jezebel. That idolatrous, bloodthirsty, brutal woman who killed the prophets of the Lord and even sought to kill Elijah. And when you look at Jehoshaphat, a revival king, and Ahab, a vile king, you couldn't have two more unlikely friends. Or at least in-laws. I mean, here are these two guys who should not be coupled up. They should not be connected, and yet they are. Jump to Jehoshaphat. What are you thinking? I look at Jehoshaphat. Jay Vernon McGee says one of the strangest partnerships on record in the pages of Scripture is these two guys. A holy, righteous, revival king and a wicked, reviling king. 
And this alliance will almost cost Jehoshaphat his life. Why did he make an alliance like this? I'll tell you why. Because he could. Because he could. He was fortified. He was strengthened in all of his garrisons and outposts. There was no way Israel was going to was going to get into Judah. He was strong. He was honored. He was loved. And so the strong, honored, and well-loved leader now starts to you know, go out into the international scene and, and make his way out there. He's, he's now aligning. Proverbs 29.23 says, A man's pride will bring him low. And I think pride is going on here. Otherwise, it just doesn't make any sense for Jehoshaphat to ally himself with Ahab. But more than pride, gang, there's something satanically subversive going on here. Don't miss this. Something going on. Remember how Jehoshaphat began his reign. I pointed this out as we started. Go back and look at verse 1 of chapter 17. Jehoshaphat, Asa's son, then became king in his place and made his position over or against Israel firm. That's how he started. Strong against. Strengthen those fortified cities, the garrisons against Israel and the north. Wicked King Ahab could not fight his way into Judah if he wanted to, so he found another way. Make friends. If you can't beat them, join them. And once you've joined them, beat them from the inside. This is how Satan works. And you'll see this over and over in the pages of Scripture, and you likely have experienced this at some degree in your own life. He has two phases in his strategy. Phase one, outward attack. Outward attack. Someone comes to faith in Jesus, or someone's about to, or you're riding high in your faith, outward attack. Boom. Hit from the outside. Make it difficult. Make them struggle. Make them hurt. And when that doesn't work, he pulls back and attacks from the inside. When the first century church first got going, after the day of Pentecost, there was tremendous outward attack against the church. And it didn't work. It just made them grow, made them stronger. So what did he do? I'm going to get in there by means of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm going to sneak in through these two and and we're going to cause a problem here from within. Outward attack is phase one. Phase two, unequal yoking. Fellowship of subterfuge. An inward alliance. And Satan makes his way in. Rick, why are you saying Satan does? Watch this. Jehoshaphat made a three-pronged alliance with the house of Ahab. Number one, first prong, he made a marital alliance. Now, just to be clear, Jehoshaphat himself did not marry into Ahab's family. His son did. He gave his son in marriage, and it was a political alliance, but it was marital. Jehoram is his son. And because of this marriage of Jehoram to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, the line of Messiah came within one young boy of being wiped out forever. There was one person (laughs) who stood between that entire line being completely lost and Messiah not being able to come as God promised he would because of this marriage. Jehoram. Jehoshaphat's son. He marries Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. Her name is Atalia. Atalia. We saw her in First and Second or First Kings. We'll see her again in coming chapters here. She is a wicked woman, just like her mother Jezebel. She takes right after mom. As we'll see in coming chapters, after her son, that is Atalia's son, Ahaziah is killed, she usurps the throne of Judah for six years. How does she do it? She kills all of the offspring 
the royal line of Judah. She goes after one by one and kills every single one of them so no one else can raise up to the throne. But undetected by her, a little boy named Yoash was taken by his nurse and some others and he was hidden right under her nose. You know where they hid him? In the temple. What a great place to hide someone if you don't want Atalia to find him because she wouldn't go to the temple. She was too wicked and idolatrous. They hid him there six years. This little boy lived in the temple courts. Six years he was protected until finally a priest would rise up. And this is a coming story. I don't want to ruin it for you. But it's, it's a great one. But if not for that one little boy being hidden, the line of David would have ended right there with Italia, the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab, who Jehoshaphat married his son to. Now, Jehoshaphat couldn't have imagined this outcome. If someone had said ahead of time, Jehoshaphat, if you allow your son to marry that girl, the line could be extinguished. He wouldn't have allowed it. But so often, we don't see down the road. We see right here and right now, Hey, Ahab, a buddy in the north. Yeah, let's make a marital alliance. It's just a man and a woman. And besides, i got wives. And you're gonna have... It's not going to be a problem. He is not taking the time to bring it to the Lord. He's not being wise in this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be bound together or literally unequally yoked with unbelievers. You've heard this verse before, I'm sure. And I've used the verse, and I believe it applies to any unequal yoking. It could be a business relationship. It could be some kind of an alliance that you have with someone who's not a believer. Be careful, because it's not... Let me be clear about this. We want non-believers to be saved. We want to show love and affection and concern and consideration for someone, whether they believe in Christ Jesus or not. But to ally yourself with someone who is not a believer in Jesus, you're begging for trouble. You're setting yourself up for a trap. There will be problems. Oh no, if I ally myself with that person, I can help save them. Just be careful. Because Paul is the one who said it. Don't be unequally yoked. And I think the most dangerous place, and we see it all the time, and some of you may have experienced that, or maybe in this, but it is in a marriage. When a Christian marries a non-Christian. Now, does that mean the non-Christian will never come to Christ in that marriage? No, it doesn't. It's, it's, it can happen. And I have prayed with many, especially women, many women who will marry a man who's not a believer, thinking, I just need to keep inviting. He's going to come around. Maybe he pretended to come around just a little bit before they got married because he wanted her. Not because he wanted him. And I've prayed this prayer with people and it is, it is a hard, hard road. You know, I, I would say to our teenagers, find someone who is at least as strong in the Lord as you are. At least as strong as you are. Better yet, find someone who's stronger, who can lift you up in faith to Jesus. Someone who will encourage, not discourage, our faith. A marital alliance. Jehoram's alliance with Atalia. Bad idea. Second alliance that Jehoshaphat now makes with the house of Ahab is a marketable alliance. Now we'll read about this in Second uh, Chronicles 20, and we already saw it in 1 Kings 22, that Jehoshaphat joins with Ahab's son, Ahaziah, on a commercial venture building great ships to send off to Tarshish to get gold and grain. God is displeased with this unequal yoking, and so God wrecks the ships before they can get to Tarshish. I do not want you going that route. He says to Jehoshaphat, I got to thinking about that today. Don't go to Tarshish. It's not a good idea. 
Nothing ever good comes of heading to Tarshish. Jonah headed to Tarshish. Okay, and ended up thrown up on the ground, you know, out of the mouth of a fish. I mean, this something about Tarshish. You know, Tarshish is a seaport of commercial trade. That's why people went there, to get stuff. It was a place of materialism. It's a great picture in Scripture of materialism. Gang, don't run from God to the lure of materialism. It will sink you. Just as it did these ships of Jehoshaphat. So a marital alliance, a marketable alliance, and then finally a military alliance. Check this out. We pick back up our story in verse 2 of chapter 18. Some years later, Jehoshaphat went down to visit Ahab at Samaria. Now, Samaria is actually somewhat north of Jerusalem, but he went down because, remember, whenever you go from Jerusalem, you go down, and whenever you ever go to Jerusalem, you go up, because Jerusalem is higher elevation. So he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for him, and the people who were with him, and, uh, and induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. This is Syria. And it's serious, as a matter of fact. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me against Ramoth Gilead? And he said to him, I am as you are, and my people as your people, and we will be with you in the battle. Really? You know what's interesting about that is the Lord had provided Jehoshaphat peace. And now he's going to go to war? He didn't have to go to war. The war with Syria was not his problem. It was not his issue, but Ahab had a problem with Syria on his northern border, so he wanted some help. Hey, come and go with me. Let's fight together. The man is in a time of peace, but he is enticed to go to war. Verse 4, continuing on, says, Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, "Um, Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Now you might say, well, Rick, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, but he should have inquired first for the word of the Lord before saying he would go and then asking to inquire first for the word of the Lord. Things are a little out of whack here. They're backwards. Jehoshaphat spoke before he prayed. But okay, I'll give, it, I'll give you this one. He did say, let's inquire of the Lord. So the king of Israel assembled the prophets, 400 men, and said to them, shall we go up against Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? Ahab asks. And they said, oh, go up for God will give it into the hand of the king. They're very excited. They're very sure this is going to happen. Now, we do see a glimmer of light here in Jehoshaphat. He does at least show some discernment. In all the darkness that is Ahab, Paul lists discernment as one of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10. In my mind, especially in these last days, one of the most important gifts that we could possibly pursue is discernment. I'll come back to that. But Jehoshaphat, he senses something amiss in these prophets who are saying, Yes, 400 men all dancing around saying, Go up, God, we'll give them to you. And so Jehoshaphat decides that they need to call for a legitimate prophet. That is a prophet of the Lord, a prophet of Yahweh, verse 7. Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So he's got their number. He knows these guys are false prophets. They're not prophets of God. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, and this cracks me up, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. (laughs) For he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And he is Micaiah. Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, I'll let not the king say so. In other words, I'll... Don't, don't say that. If he's a prophet of the Lord, he's, he's got to have some good in him. And so they send for him. 
He called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, Imla's son. And now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes, and they were sitting at the threshing floor of the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Here we're back to the false prophets. Watch this guy. Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, he made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall gore the Aramans until they are consumed. This guy's a moron. <laughs> All the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up against Ramah Gilead and succeed, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Well, then the messenger, who went to summon Micaiah, spoke to him, saying, Behold, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. So, please... Let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. (laughs) But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. What a great standard. That's our standard today, gang. What the Lord God says, that I will speak. Not what the government says I can say. Not what the politically correct world allows us to speak what the Lord says that I will speak and if that's offensive to you I'm sorry even the very cross is an offense (coughs) truth is an offense from time to time but if it's the word of the Lord we have got to be willing to speak it this is Micaiah's philosophy for life his name by the way and it's actually Micah Yehu Micah Yehu which literally means who is like God who is like God The name fits this prophet. He understands the word of the Lord in a way that neither Ahab nor even Jehoshaphat, I'm afraid, understand at this point. Moses said in Deuteronomy 32.46, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. And then he says, For it is not an idle word for you indeed. It is your life. What are you saying, Moses? This isn't religion. This is life and eternity. This isn't just some dusty book you set on the shelf and pull out once a year to say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer. No, this is your life. And Micaiah, he understood that. Verse 14. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And he said, go up and succeed for they will be given into your hand. Now, note this. Ahab realizes he's not being honest with him. He realizes there's, there's got to be some sarcasm here because he immediately turns around and said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So I don't know how Micaiah said this. said, Oh yeah, go ahead and go up and fight. He'll be with you. But he said it in such a way that it was obvious that he was tongue-in-cheek. And he did not really believe what he was saying, but this was not the word that he, would, that he was supposed to bring. Ahab says, I want a serious answer. So verse 16, he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. Interesting, that's how Jesus saw Israel too. Like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. In peace. The Lord is saying, and I believe especially to Jehoshaphat here, why are you inviting war when I've given you peace? Do we do that? Do we invite war when He's given us peace? I'm talking individually, internally in our relationships. When He's given us peace, are you the kind of person, and I don't think any of you are, but let me just throw this out here, are you the kind of person who likes to stir things up? 
who likes to bring a little dissension, you know, maybe a little gossip here and there, a little slander, just enough to, you know, you, you, you toss it out there and then you sit back and you watch people go at it and you get a thrill out of that. I mean, there are people like that. When you have come to Jesus and He has given you peace, why invite war? Don't go there. It's interesting to me that Jehoshaphat is getting a very clear word and the Lord is saying, let every man return to his house in peace. Let's stay in this place of peace. And Jehoshaphat completely ignores it. I expected Ahab to. I expect Ahab to say, 401. <laughs> I'm going with the 400 prophets who are speaking what I want to hear. Let's go fight. But Jehoshaphat? Ah, oh, Jehoshaphat. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, <laughs> Did I not tell you that he would prophesy? That he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Well then, and watch this, interesting. Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne and all the hosts of heaven standing on His right and on His left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, How? He said, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And then he, listen to this, the Lord said to him, You are to entice him and prevail also. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these your prophets, for the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Does that story bother anybody else in the room? You read this and you go, huh? Because this is not typical of what I've heard of the Lord and how He functions. This story is recounted here. We already saw it once in 1 Kings 22. So we get to be unsettled twice now and the Lord doing something that just seems uncharacteristic. And it certainly raises a couple of tough theological questions. (laughs) Question number one, how can a deceiving spirit still have access to heaven? I thought the good guys were in heaven. You thought wrong. Because even now, Satan has, Satan still has access to heaven. In Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, people are coming up, the sons of God are coming before the Lord, angels are coming up, presenting things to God, talking to God, and Satan comes up among them. He has access. He doesn't reside there, but he has an access visa. He can get in. Zechariah chapter 3 mentions the same thing. Jude chapter 1, or Jude verse 9 And Revelation 12, verses 7 through 10, describes a day, yet future, but not far off, when those heavenly access visas will be completely revoked and no evil thing will ever be able to come before the Lord. No demon, no deceiving spirit. But, when this happened, deceiving spirits could still come into the presence of God, could still come up before Him. Okay, so let me get this right. So you're saying that a deceiving, even possibly a demonic spirit actually came before the Lord and offered His services? That's exactly what I'm saying. I think that's exactly what's going on. And note this, He can't move without God's permission. It's good to know. We have a sovereign King over all things. Second question. Yeah, but would the Lord use deceitful methods to further His will? I thought I read somewhere that the, in the Bible that God can't lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. By two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie. Those two unchangeable things by the name are His character and His word. 
His character does not allow for that. That's something God cannot do. If people ever ask you, what, is there anything God can't do? Yeah, He can't lie. He cannot lie. Because it is not in His nature and character to do so. And He cannot speak lies because His word is never a lie. When He says it, He does it. He means what He says. He says what He means. He cannot lie. That is true. But let me ask you a question in the context of this story. Is it a lie or a deceit if you tell the person that that's what you're doing? You see, God sends the prophet Micaiah. He makes sure that the truth is spoken. He tells Ahab, Hey, it's a deceiving spirit. It's not truth. You want to follow deceit? Here it is. The Lord is... is, This is what He does in our lives. He sets up truth and He sets up lies. My son Hayden and I have had a lot of great conversations about this. Right, Hayden? There's the truth and there's a lie. And the Lord puts those before us so that we can look at the two and say, what am I going to choose? And the Lord makes it absolutely clear. This is deceit. This is not right. This is a lie. And this is the truth. What are you going to choose? And he puts this before Ahab and Jehoshaphat absolutely clear. Micaiah exposes the deceiving spirit on the premises for what it is. He says, there's a liar here. And watch how the lying spirit, I believe, immediately reacts. Verse 23. Then Zedekiah, the son of Penaiah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek. Okay, this false prophet comes over to him and whacks him. Which is something I think a deceiving spirit would do. And he said, how did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? How dare you speak truth here? <laughs> Micaiah said, behold, you will see on that day when you enter an inner, enter an inner room to hide yourself. And he's speaking prophetically about what's going to happen. Because they're going to go to war with Syria, Ramoth Gilead, and this very prophet is going to hide himself because they're going to be invaded. And then the king of Israel, that is Ahab, verse 25, says, Take Micah and return to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison, and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah says, as they're ushering him out the door, If you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And as a last shot, parting shot, Listen, all you people! <laughs> Listen to the truth, he says. I've told you what the truth is. Listen up. Pay attention. Don't miss what's going on here. So Ahab has him ushered out. You know, you can't silence the truth. You can put him in prison. You can lock him up and give him bread and water, but you cannot silence the truth. The truth still rings in the air among all the people. You can take truth out of the public school in the form of prayer. You know, you can try and rip truth out of the Pledge of Allegiance or out of our textbooks. You can silence or try to remove it from the public square, but you cannot silence the truth. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged. You can't silence the truth. Sometimes we get real worked up, right, Leslie? I mean, we, we have gotten real worked up in staff meeting, talking about stuff going on politically and in our world. And, oh, 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 and then, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is still God. He's still king. And things may get confusing or dark or messy. And by the way, please don't take this that Rick is getting political against this administration. I've had this feeling for a long, long time. Okay? Truth is truth. And you cannot silence it. What you can do is shout it from the rooftops, which is what we're called to do. Be proclaimers 
of the truth. Psalm 85.11, Truth springs from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. You can't silence it. You can say the world evolved from nothingness, but the truth is, look around. Really? Really? It amazes me. People will say, that flower pot over there is a beautiful work of craftsmanship and art. But the flower just came out of its own nothingness? Anyway, truth cries out. Remember Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem? He's on the, on the back of the, of the donkey and He's coming in and, and all the people are saying, Hosanna, Son of David! Hosanna to the King! And they're worshipping Him and they're throwing the palm fronds down. And some of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they don't like this at all. Lord, uh, you know, Rabbi, tell your people to stop saying these things. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Why? You can't silence the truth. The truth is going to come out. They tried to silence the truth. They nailed Him to a cross. But the truth resurrected. And the truth is as loud today as He has ever been. Now the unfortunate thing here is Jehoshaphat, though he originally discerned something wasn't right among these prophets, now, amazingly, he ignores. Jehoshaphat ignores the voice of truth. Which is why you are not to be unequally yoked. He's hanging out with Ahab. If he had not been with Ahab and he had gotten a message from the prophet of the Lord, wow, he would have responded. But here he gets a message from the prophet of the Lord and there's Ahab. Watch what happens, verse 28. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, "Um, I'll disguise myself and go into the battle, but you put on your robes. (laughs) What? (laughs) You go ahead and look like a king. I'm I'm not going to, you know, because why? Because he believed Micaiah. He believed what the prophet had spoken, but he's trying to do an end run. If I just disguise myself, maybe we can get around this prophecy. Satan's always doing that. Maybe we can get around this prophecy. You remember what I've told you prophecy is? Prophecy is not what may happen. Prophecy is what God has already seen happen. It's already taken place from God's perspective. It's an absolute done deal. Well, reading on, so he says, I'll disguise myself and go into battle. You put on your robes. Amazingly, <laughs> Jehoshaphat does. Oh, what are you thinking, man? Discernment out the window. So the king of Israel disguised himself and they went into battle. Verse 30. Now, the king of Aram had commanded the captains of his chariots, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. In other words, I want you to go after Ahab. Look for their king and take him down. Well, Ahab's disguised, isn't he? And Jehoshaphat is not. Jehoshaphat looks like a king. So when the captains of the chariots, verse 31, saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is the king of Israel! And they turned aside to fight against him. But Jehoshaphat cried out, Uh-oh! And look at the grace. The Lord helped him. He's not being discerning. He is not being wise. He's coupled himself up with evil and wickedness. But the Lord hears him when he cries. Praise God. Because I need the Lord to hear me when I cry out in stupid places. And God diverted them from him. Verse 32, when the captain of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel, that is Ahab, in a joint of the armor, right in the crack. So he turned to the driver of the chariot and he said... Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I'm severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot in front of the Arameans until evening, and at sunset, he died. First Kings chapter, uh, First Kings devotes three full chapters to Ahab. 
and they're long chapters. talks about Ahab and Jezebel and all kinds of evil things that they get into and murders that they commit and all that they do. All we get in Chronicles is this little section of the story. And the only reason it's here at all is because it had to do with Jehoshaphat of Judah. And I think that's interesting because here in the book of Chronicles, Ahab, this vile, wicked agent of the enemy, he's trivial. He's inconsequential compared to the scepter of Judah that is the rule of Jesus Christ. Jehoshaphat, however, is learning to discern the hard way. He's realized something now after this has all taken place. He's figured it out. Wow, I have been stupid. I have been foolish. I've been trusting in Ahab. I've been listening to false prophets. Well, Rick, how do you know that? Read on. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hananiah the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? Christians, listen to that. Listen carefully. I'm going to read that again. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? Well, I don't do that, don't you? Have you? Do we? When we try to tolerate things that are intolerable to the Lord, when we say we're okay with things that are detestable to the Lord, when we align ourselves in positions with the world and the Lord would have nothing to do with that, that's not showing discernment. And this is the message now. Jehoshaphat's life. This is the message. Yehu comes to him and, and, and says these things, and, but he says in verse 3, and I love this, but there is some good in you. For you've removed the Asherah from the land and you have set your heart to seek God. He's getting both messages. Look, you've done some foolish things here. You have allied yourself with wickedness. That is never a wise thing to do. You've shown no discernment. But you know what? I know you love God. The Lord wants you to know He knows that your heart is after Him. That you love Him. So what does he do? Verse 4, So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and I love this, brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Had they gotten away a little bit? Yeah. And so had their king. In poor judgment, in aligning with the house of Ahab. But he brings the people back, verse 5, and he appointed, watch this, judges in the land and in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you are not to judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. I think Jehoshaphat felt like he had been in part of all three of those things. And in Jerusalem also, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests and some of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel. Why? For the judgment of the Lord. And to judge disputes among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Oh, see, they're just all a bunch of judgmental people. Judges everywhere. And for judgment, they're judging. And that's what you Christians do. You're just judgmental. (laughs) And people say that and it throws us back on our heels. Don't let that be upsetting to you. We are supposed to judge. We're just not supposed to be judgmental, and there is a difference. 
So he does get all these judges going. He charges them. Verse 9, saying, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and wholeheartedly. Whenever any dispute comes to you from your brethren who live in their cities, between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and ordinances, you shall warn them so that they may not be guilty before the Lord. And wrath may not come on you and your brethren. Thus you shall do and you will not be guilty. Behold, Amariah the chief priest will be over you in all that pertains to the Lord and Zebediah the son of Ishmael the ruler of the house of Judah in all that pertains to the king. Also the Levites shall be officers before you. Act resolutely and the Lord be with the upright. Jehoshaphat has learned his lesson. This is good stuff. He has finally learned the value of judgment. There is another word for judgment. It is discernment. Discernment, gang, is simply judging rightly. Again, it's not being judgmental. It's not looking down your nose at someone as if they're not as good as you. That is a completely different thing. And that's what the world will try to trip you up on. You're being judgmental. Look, if I'm making a call between what is right and what is wrong, that is not judgmental. That is right judging. That is discernment. Jehoshaphat does two great things following his blunder with Ahab. He brought the people back to the Lord and he taught the people how to judge rightly before the Lord. And there's a great lesson in this for us. Proverbs 2 verse 3, If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Now I mentioned to you, discernment is one of the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.10 To my mind, it is one of the most important, one of the most avoided, and one of the most demanding of all the spiritual gifts. How is a spiritual gift demanding? I, I thought if it was a spiritual gift, God gave it to you. Why? You make it sound like it requires something out of us. It does. As a matter of fact, every spiritual gift requires something of you. Well, if the gifts are given by God, then why do they require something? Well, let me ask you this. Does a gifted musician no longer have to practice? Does a gifted athlete stay off the court or the field? The truth is, discernment requires practice. It requires all the spiritual gifts at some level require practice. They require use. Discernment as a spiritual gift requires practice. Hebrews 5.14 tells us solid food, speaking of the Word of God, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Guess what? You're not going to naturally come to it. I'm not naturally going to discern right and wrong. I'll have a clue about it. God does give a sense of conscience into every person, believer or not. But ultimately, that conscience can either be seared, as Paul writes, to where we're not judging right and wrong at all, or by practice, it gets sharpened to where now I can discern what is good and evil, what is of the Lord and what is not, to the point when someone whose spirit is not right with the Lord, you can sense that. It's a gift but it is a gift we practice. It requires practice. If we don't practice our gifts, they will weaken. If we don't use our gifts, we may lose our gifts, especially discernment. And my friends, it is a gift we need. All of us. If you're praying for any spiritual gift, would you add that, at least add that to the list? 
Discernment in these last days. Paul said in Philippians 1.9, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. We need to be people of discernment. And if we're not using the gift, we may lose it. Paul prays that the church of Philippi be discerning. The second thing about discernment is that it requires prayer. Absolutely requires prayer. For every time that little discernment alarm goes off in the back of my head, I am immediately driven to the Lord. Why am I thinking this, God? What's going on here? Something's not right. Can you help me with this? Is this just me or is this you? Every challenge, every decision, every concern must be brought before the Lord. If you're discerning something and you're not comfortable about it, your next step is to pray about it. Jehoshaphat didn't, remember? He did discern there was a problem. But he jumped ahead. And then after discerning, says, oh, um, something's not right here. Can we get a prophet of the Lord in here? It requires practice. Discernment requires prayer. And third and final one, discernment requires persistence. I could be wrong, but I think the sermon is possibly one of the loneliest of the spiritual gifts. Especially because we live in such a politically correct, tolerant, universalist church in the world today. Where discernment goes right out the window. Nobody wants to be called judgmental. So we avoid any kind of judgment, and it's not wise. Nobody wants to be called intolerant, and so we tolerate things we shouldn't tolerate. The Bible teaches, 1 Peter 4.7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment. And sober spirit, why? For the purpose of prayer. So that you can be better connected to the Father. 1 Corinthians 2.15. And I'm going to read this in the King James because of the, the words specifically. It's great here. But he that is spiritual, in the NASB says, appraises all things. King James says, he who is spiritual judges all things. Same word. Yet he himself is judged of no man. Hey, let people throw all kinds of things at you. Their judgment will not stick if you are judging things rightly by discernment in the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me just read this to you. You can flip there if you'd like to. In fact, if you can do it quickly, do it. I'm going to read this to you. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Peter writes, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. The word exultation, literally to exalt means to leap or to jump up. You can rejoice with leaping, is what Peter is saying. Verse 14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Now watch this. Verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And he quotes here from the Old Testament, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, Peter says, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Verse 17 just sticks out like a sore thumb. It is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. Now listen, he is not teaching that salvation is earned. But Peter is saying that saved people, those of God's own household, are not exempt from judgment, just as we see with Jehoshaphat. He makes a wrong decision and almost loses his life for it and messes things up in the revival of Israel for it until he learns to discern, comes back around, and what does he do? He sets judges over all the people that will judge correctly that will discern right from wrong and help the people do so as well. It is a pattern of discernment that he learns the hard way. He messes up big time. Cries out to the Lord because his heart is good and God hears and saves him and he turns to the path of discernment and sound judgment. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. I would add to that, in my mind, it is far past time for judgment to begin with the household of God. We are a people who are called to discern. And we don't have to be judgmental to be discerning. As a matter of fact, true discernment is about the most loving thing you can do. If you discern something is harmful or hurtful, if Jehoshaphat had discerned this, and if he really had cared about Ahab, he could have saved Ahab's life. Not that we you know, want him to. <laughs> But learning to discern is a loving thing to do. We are called to judge and to discern all things, biblically, prayerfully, spiritually. But be sure, this last thing, that your judgment, your discernment, be sure it's grounded in love. As judgment begins in the household of God, be sure that if you are discerning a problem in the life of another believer, that you approach that believer with love and compassion. Not judgmentalism, if there be such a word, but discernment. Do it in love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. And this picture in Jehoshaphat of great revival and of a great blunder, but of a return to great discernment. Pray, Lord, You would teach us how to judge and to judge rightly and compassionately and caringly and, and, and with love, Lord. The people will know by our love for each other we're disciples that people will see by the fruit of what you are doing that there is something alive going on here but in all of that Father may we not in our fruitful pride be caught up in foolish pride and forget to be a discerning people Father you alone by your power can can implant these things in our hearts I pray you do so now in the name of Jesus Amen